Verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have now come into the world, and I am, now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you, that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, that it is from you, that you breathed it out. I thank you that you've given it us for us to study, to understand. Father, I pray that as I preach this morning, Lord, that you would hide me behind Christ, that anything that isn't of me would not be remembered, that everything that is you would stick, Lord. I pray that, that those who don't, don't yet know you would hear of you and understand. I pray that those who, do, those who do know you, Lord, would be encouraged and uplifted, challenged to walk more like you, challenged to walk in your steps. I pray that you would grant me the strength to bring this message. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're going to start. I've, I've split this, this passage up in sort of three sections. We've got verses 25 to 28, which is the things that Jesus said. We then have 29 and 30, which is the disciples, and then back to Jesus for 31 to 33. It's the first section, figures of speech, 25 to 28. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have now come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. As we start this passage this morning, we see that Jesus starts by referring back to what has already been said. I've said these things to you in figures of speech. He's been talking to the apostles about everything that is to come. He's been talking to them about um, the work of the Holy Spirit, the persecution, the future, the things of God, the things of the Father. He's been showing them these things and using parables and figures of speech, illustrations to try and help them to understand just what is going on. But as he has spoken to the disciples, as he's sort of tried to tell them these things, they haven't been able to understand. They haven't quite grasped it. Honestly, they are quite hard to understand. These aren't easy things that we're talking about, especially in a time before the cross. As Christians, we have the benefit of looking back on all of this. But for the disciples, 
the death and resurrection of Jesus was still in the future. So they were trying to understand what it means for the Messiah, the one who they thought was going to come and redeem Israel, who's going to set up a new kingdom, trying to figure out how does that figure with him dying? How does that work with him going to the cross? What does it mean for him to die and three days later rise? So as Jesus has been speaking to them about these these incredible divine truths, they just couldn't grasp it. Even when Jesus used illustrations, we saw last week in verses um, 21 to uh, 22, 21, 22, he talks about this woman giving birth and how the sorrow, the pain of childbirth turns to joy when the child is born. That was sort of to demonstrate how you go through sorrow and then joy comes through the other, other side. He's been giving them this, this picture to demonstrate this truth, but they just don't get it. Be saying, although I've been using figurative speech, I've been speaking to you to try and help you understand, there is a time coming when I will speak plainly. There is a time coming where you won't need these figures of speech. Most commentators on this verse suggest that he's actually talking about the, the 40 days after the resurrection, the time when he was with the disciples following his re- resurrection, but before his ascension. We know that, that during that poor period of 40 days, he did meet with people. Um, we see it, all of the Gospels, there is a period after Jesus' resurrection. 1 Corinthians fifteen six says, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So Jesus met with these large crowds of people after his resurrection that we don't have record of. But there is, it's very reasonable to, to have thought that he could, he could teach more during this time. He could tell them things that, that we don't have recorded in the scripture. We do have some things. We have things like the Great Commission, the, the charge to go and preach the gospel to all the world. There are some things that we don't have. I'm sure also that it would have been much easier for the apostles to understand these truths of God after the resurrection. They would have had a similar understanding to, to what we have now. They've seen his death. They've seen his resurrection And now they're able to understand what it means for him to come and redeem the world. I think also, though, that it could be included in this thought, the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Holy Spirit communicating between the Father, the Son and the Apostles. The time after Christ has ascended to the Father. Where through the Holy Spirit, he would still communicate them and give them this revelation, this understanding of of truths of God. The Holy Spirit who is coming to indwell them and minister to the world, I think that is, is certainly within the possibilities here. And we see this throughout the epistles. We have a much greater understanding of just what Jesus did, just what it means to say God is love, for example, through the writings of John 50 years after the ascension. He's had much more time to understand just what Jesus was saying when he writes. And the way then that this benefits us is exactly that way. Through the New Testament, we have an understanding of who God is, who Christ is, what he has done for us through the writings of the apostles. We are also indwelt with the same Holy Spirit. We have access to the words that the Spirit inspired them to write and the Spirit to help us understand just what they mean by those words. Jesus goes on, In that day he speaks them clearly without figures of speech and when this is happening they will pray in his name. This is something we saw last week in verses 23 and 24. It said, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. 
Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Jesus wants to show that their relationship and our relationship is closer than we think. It's very easy for us as, to believe it, as believers to fall in the trap of thinking that we can only come to God the Father through God the Son. That God the Father is maybe a bit more big and scary, maybe a bit more wrathful, and, but thanks to the Son, the Son sort of appeases that wrath, appeases that, that sort of relationship. But that's not what we see here. We see that when we pray, we come directly to God the Father. We come directly to God the Father. It's not that we are praying through the Son to get to the Father, but that God the Father himself hears our prayers and wants to be part of our lives. This isn't meant to detract from the mediation of Christ that we see in Hebrews. It's not meant to take away from that at all. He is still our great high priest mediating before the Father. But I think that that mediation has to do more with sin and less with prayers. I think that God himself, God the Father, God the Son and the Spirit, hears our prayers. And up to this point, the disciples haven't prayed anything in the name of Jesus. They still felt this sort of separation between God and man. They had Jesus, who was God, the God-man, God in flesh. But they still had this sort of separation between the spiritual and the physical. At this point in the gospel, we also know that, that the temple still had this massive curtain hanging between the most holy place and everything else. But at the death of Jesus, when he gives up his spirit, it says that the curtain was torn from top to bottom. In Matthew twenty-seven fifty-one, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. The way to God is now open if you will seek him. That is what Jesus is communicating to the apostles here. You can come to the Father and he hears your prayers. Why? Why does he hear your prayers? Because he loves you. Because the Father loves you. Throughout the Gospel of John, we have constantly seen or consistently seen that God does what he does out of his love. He does what he does out of his desire for the world to be reconciled to himself. John 3.16, right at the beginning, for God so loved the world, for God loved the world in this way that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The way that God loved the world, he gave his only son. He gave his only son to come and die on the cross in our place so that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. The Apostle Paul puts it best, I think, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says in verse 20, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, make God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The other place is, is potentially Romans 5. Romans 5, 8 is a beautiful verse. It says, but God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Friend, if you are here this morning and you don't know God, you don't know who he is, 
If you haven't yet come to Christ, I want to tell you that God loves you and wants you. He wants you to be reconciled to him. For the sake of Christ, the Son of God, be reconciled to God. So that Christ in you, you would become the righteousness of God. You would become right with God. You would have this relationship that is beyond any sort of human relationship that we can have. That in Christ, you would commune with God. Coming back to verse 27 here then. We see that the love which the Father has for the disciples is understood to be at least partly based on the love that they had for Jesus. This is not to say that the disciples took the first step. The first step is Jesus coming to earth. Through Jesus coming to earth, God made it possible to come to him. Jesus came from God and the disciples then believed and loved Jesus. This then is the basis for their relationship with the Father. If Jesus hadn't come, then they wouldn't have been able to have that relationship. Romans chapter 10 verses 13 to 15 are some of my favourite verses in the Bible. I'm just going to read them out. There's, I'm going to add a bit at the end. So Romans 10, 13 to 15. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, without a doubt, will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. The bit that I'm going to add is, how could you preach of him who never came? Without Christ coming, there is nothing to preach. There is no good news. And so in, in Christ coming, he opens the way for the disciples and for us to have this relationship with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. To have this full and flowing relationship with God Almighty, the creator of the heavens and the universe. Jesus then finishes this, this bit where he's been talking to the disciples by restating something that we've looked at quite a lot over the last few weeks. I've come from the Father. I've come into the world. And now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. Jesus came from the Father. He is God. He is divine. He came and dwelt on earth. He became human, completely human and completely God. He came from the Father. He came into the world. He came and lived the human experience. He experienced everything that you and I experience and yet without sin. He was tempted by Satan and yet remain sinless. And at this point, he is coming to the end of his earthly ministry. He has spent three years preaching the gospel, casting demons out, healing the sick. And he's coming to the end of that where he would be crucified. The very next day from these words, he will be hanging on the cross for our sin. And after rising, he was going to leave and ascend to the Father, at which point he would send the Holy Spirit to minister to the apostles. She so said all of these amazing things and then the apostles pipe up and think they have something to say. So verses 29 and 30, the disciples' misunderstanding. His disciples said, aha, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative language. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. I just want to make crystal clear what has happened here. Jesus has said, I'm saying things to you now, and you can't really understand them. They're, they're a bit opaque. They're figurative, not really that clear. 
And the disciples go, uh, and he says, not clear, but in the future, I will speak to you clearly. I'll speak to you in ways that you can really understand. And the disciples go, oh, now you're speaking clearly. Straight away. Not in the future, but now. They've jumped the gun. They think that, that somehow they're understanding the teaching about the Father. Without needing illustration. They think that they are mature enough to understand. They overestimate their own ability to know the things of God at this point in their walk. I think we can all be like that sometimes. We all sort of jump the gun and go, oh, I understand this. When in reality, we need to spend a bit more time praying and going through the word. It's very easy to jump the gun and go, I can see this clearly now. When actually, it's still opaque. But from their their jumping of the gun, from their overstating what they understand, they draw completely correct conclusions about Jesus. The conclusion is that Jesus is all-knowing. We know that you know all things, Lord. He can look into the hearts and minds of everyone and know exactly what they are thinking, what they're concluding. We see this a few times in his um, interactions with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're coming with, with sort of false accusations and questions. And he knows exactly what they're thinking before they ask, before they're trying to come up with these um, questions. But depending on how you read this, you can either read this as like a passing remark. Now we know, of course, we know that you know all things. Or you can read it as a sort of confirmation from what Jesus has been saying. It's an effect on what they understand. Before we didn't know, but now we know. And I'm inclined to understand this as the latter, just based on the context of the passage. In John, 18, John 16, verses 18 and 19, we saw that they didn't understand something that Jesus had said and so talked among themse- amongst themselves. Um, John 16, 18 and 19, it says, So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I mean by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. And Jesus keeps speaking then from verse 19 all the way down to the disciples here speaking in verse 29. This is the first time that they're interjecting again. They go, now we know that you know all. Now we we see that you know all things. You know the minds of man. You know questions that haven't been asked yet. Now, I agree with what Daniel said last week, that that Jesus knew the disciples very well because he spent three years with them. But I do think that this is talking about the divine knowledge of God. Now we know all things because you've explained these things and didn't even need to be asked. He knew any opposition before it came, any persecution before it happened. He knew any and every question before it was asked. The disciples say here, there's no need for a questioner. There's no need for anyone to ask you anything because you know already. You know what the answer is and you can give it. And the amazing thing is that Jesus still is all-knowing in heaven. He still knows all things about you, about me, about this world that we live in. He is the all-knowing God, the one that we worship, and he seeks to have a relationship with you through his death on the cross. Isn't that just amazing? But this statement isn't just that they recognise that Jesus knows all things, but because he knows all things, the disciples then see this as a reason to praise him, essentially. as a reason to believe in him, believe that he is from God. They see his, his knowledge in these things as a confirmation that he truly was 
God. He truly was divine. He truly was God. This then leads in to Jesus' sort of final response in verses 31 to 33. 31 to 33, it says this, Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I love the way that the CSB translates, translates that. It says, be courageous. I have conquered the world. Isn't that just amazing words? Be courageous. I've conquered the world. We got onto that later. I get excited about that. Do you now believe? This sort of question cuts right to the heart of the disciples. They've just said, Lord, we know you know all things. And so we believe in you. And Jesus goes, do you believe? Really? You sure about that? They've just said that they believe, they recognise Jesus as being God, they recognise that he knows all things, and the first thing that Jesus says in, in response is to challenge their belief. This because he is the all-knowing God, he knows exactly what's going to happen in the next few hours. Jesus, who knows all things, knew that the disciples thought one thing, but that their actions were going to show something very differently. Something very different. He knew that at this point in their understanding, they were still largely in the dark, and we're expecting a physical redemption of Israel. They're expecting Jesus to come in as the Messiah, kick the Romans out, and set up a kingdom. And that wasn't what's going to happen. Jesus knew that as they saw the things that did happen, they would not remain. As they saw him arrested and tried, they would not stick by his side. They knew that as he was crucified, he knew that as he was crucified on the cross, the disciples would be hiding. Even Peter, the one who said just a couple of chapters ago, I would die for you, Lord. Why can't I come and and die with you? In a few short hours, he would deny Jesus three times. This question reminds me of the interaction between Jesus and Peter after the resurrection in John 20, 20 or 21 where they're walking along the edge of Lake of Gal- the Sea of Galilee and Jesus talks to Peter and says, do you love me, Peter? And he goes, yes, of course I love you. And he goes, do you love me, Peter? Yes, of-, of course, you know I love you. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, I love you. You've said this three times. Do you believe in me? Do you really believe in me? And of course, we see that, that post-resurrection um, interaction, a sort of a redemption from the three times that he denies Jesus. But there's still that sort of um, shadow here in my mind. Do you believe? The disciples have just said, We believe, but Jesus asks them and puts a sense of doubt in their belief. You believe me now, but when I'm arrested, will you still believe? When I am crucified, will I still believe? This question, I think, should force us to have a moment of self-reflection. A moment where we, we need to, to look at ourselves, look at our own faith. It's very easy to think we have the right head knowledge. The disciples, after all, had been with Jesus for three years. They'd heard all of his teaching. thought that I had earlier this morning's Judas had three years of Jesus' teaching and yet betrayed him. It's very easy to hear all of these things and yet... The disciples, their faith at this point was relatively weak and immature. 
that's harsh to say, but that, that's what we see. Have you put your faith in the one who paid the price for your sins, the one who died and now lives forevermore? Lives forevermore. And there are times in our lives when we struggle, where we do have doubts. The thing is that ultimately our faith is not about what we do. It's not about how, how hard I can believe. But it's about the one in whom we believe. It's about Jesus Christ. It's the person and work of him. Not in ourselves, not in anything that we can do. When, when, when things get tough, God gives grace. And Paul in, in 2 Corinthians says, my grace is sufficient for you. In your weakness, that my power might be known. And after Easter, we're going to see the risen Christ taking the apostles and restoring them and fellowshipping with them. Even after they've abandoned him for all intents and purposes, he's going to say, come back to me. Be restored. Coming back to the text, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen to them. And when it is going to happen, he says, you're actually going to desert me in just a couple of hours, not even a couple of hours. Maybe an hour, two hours. You're going to abandon me. You're going to run back to your homes. You're going to hide. I don't know, have you ever seen a fox in a chicken coop? It's quite a sight. But that, that sort of idea of being scattered. You know, the fox comes in and all the chickens just disappear. They run away as fast as they can. That's what it means for the disciples to be scattered. They'll be running hard and fast to get away from the people who arrested Jesus. They'll be trying to put distance between themselves and between Jesus. Between themselves and the Christ. That is why Peter denies Jesus. I don't want to be associated with him because I'm worried what will happen to my life if they think that I followed him. Even when he is mocked and stripped bare, they have abandoned him. But the thing is here is that we see that Jesus says, you've all abandoned me, but I'm not alone. I'm not alone, for the Father is with me. You will leave me alone, but I'm not alone, because the Father is with me. I, I, I can't even begin to imagine what it was like for Jesus to go through all of the things leading up to the crucifixion and then the crucifixion, being tried, being falsely accused, being flogged, being mocked, being stripped bare. And yet throughout all of that, the Father was with him. When we think about these things, it's not only that Christ went through all of those things, but it's that the Father watched as all of those things happened. He watched as Christ was slandered, as his back was shredded with a lead-tipped whip. The Father was watching. He didn't abandon him, didn't leave him. And I think that we can then also go, well, Christ is the one in whom we trust. We are in Christ. We are adopted into sonship. The father wouldn't abandon his son in seemingly the worst situation possible. The father also will not abandon you or I, no matter how bad it gets. We were seeing about God's faithfulness a few moments ago. God is faithful. He stands by you even when it is tough, especially when it is tough. And all of this then leads up to verse 33, the sort of capstone of 
at least this chapter, but I think probably the whole sort of Last Supper discourse from chapter 13 all the way up to chapter 16. This is sort of the, the pinnacle, the high point. Is the last thing that he speaks to the disciples before they go to the Garden of Gethsemane. Is the last thing that he speaks to the disciples before he is arrested and crucified. So what is this amazing thing? All these things have been said. Is that all of these things have been said. The things about who Jesus is, the things about our relationship to God, the things about Jesus' death and resurrection, the things about the coming sufferings and persecutions, the things about the coming Holy Spirit and his ministry that he has once he has come. All of these things have been said so that in him we might have peace. And this is, this is really important to notice. It's not just that Jesus has said, I've said all these things so that you can have peace. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, I've said all these things so that in me, you might have peace. In Christ, you might have peace. There is peace that comes, and that peace is not found anywhere except in Christ Jesus. This is directly contrasted with the world. In the world, you will have tribulation. You will have suffering. You will have persecution. You will have difficulties. But in me, in Christ, there is peace. Any so-called peace that the world offers ultimately doesn't end in peace. It ends in violence and dissatisfaction. But in Christ, there is a true peace. A peace that Paul says in Philippians 4.7. 4.7 says, And the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It is a peace that is beyond our comprehension. We don't understand it, but God gives it to us. We've talked quite a lot over the last few weeks about suffering and persecution, about sorrow. I think that that that's quite a theme through these chapters. But I think it also helps us to understand the certainty of what's going to happen. He doesn't just say it lots because he likes to hear his own voice, but he says it because it's going to happen. It's, it's a truth. It's undoubtedly going to happen. But, and this is a big but, Jesus doesn't end on the tribulation. Jesus doesn't end on the suffering and persecution. He doesn't say, in me you have peace, in the world you have tribulation, End of story, I'm going to pray. That's not what Jesus does here. He goes, you're going to have tribulation, but be courageous. Take courage. The world is full of trials and tribulations, but in the face of those trials, in the face of those persecutions, we are not to be a people that cowers away, that goes, hides in our houses, that tries to get away from it all. No, Jesus says here to, to be courageous. Stand for him. Don't be a coward in the face of the world. And what is the reason that we can have courage? Jesus has overcome the world. He has conquered. There is nothing left for us to fear. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 56 and 58, these are amazing verses. It says, The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gave us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. 
through the work of Christ on the cross, he has attained the final victory. He has dealt the death blow to death and Satan. A blow from which there is no coming back. Because of this victory, we should push on to labour for the Lord. Push on. It should push us into the good works that he has prepared for us in advance to walk in. Because Jesus has won this victory, there is great joy and peace for us. Because Jesus has won, we are to be courageous. We are to be grounded in Christ. 2 Timothy Chapter 1, verse 7 says, For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We do not have a spirit of fear. We do not have a spirit of cowardice. But we have a spirit of power, of love and of self-control. We do not turn when the going gets tough. We do not run away from the battlefield. We push on with courage, knowing that God has given us a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your words. I thank you that you have breathed it all out, Lord. You've given it to us that we may know you better, that we may have a relationship with you. Father, I pray that if there is anything of me that wasn't of you, Lord, that it would be forgotten, that it would be left in the road, Lord. Father, I pray that anything that is of you, Lord, would be remembered. Father, you are are glorious. I pray that you would help us to glorify you in our lives. You would help us to be courageous. Lord, we know that you are a good and loving God. Help us to show that to the world. Father, I pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We invite the worship team back up. I'm going to sing our final song, which is, My hope is built on nothing less or cornerstone. Yeah.